0: Fred and Jeff and John are the three horsemen. They never get along, they're the three horsemen. They argue about science fiction and fantasy. Fred and Jeff and John are the three horsemen. Ride, horsemen, ride! <laughs> Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to another episode of the Three Horsemen podcast. My name is John Stevens, and I'm going to be the be the little showrunner tonight. And tonight, or whenever you listen to this, we have uh, a lot to talk about. As always, there's no no lack of words here. For the Three Horsemen podcast. We are going to start with me talking a bit about my experience at ReaderCon this past weekend. And then we are going to segue into presenting our fabulous guest, Stina Light. Yeah,
1: I'm fabulous. Um,
0: you are. Totally. And then as usual, we will get into our whole culture consumed part where Jeff and Fred talk about things they like, then I talk about things I don't like. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, I may surprise night. The... <laughs> Ooh, excellent controversy right here yeah. and so to start my name as i said is john stevens i am a writer uh, of fiction and nonfiction, and uh, i blog at uh, SF Signal and a little bit on my own blog and i can be found on twitter at erudite ogre and also here is another horseman jeff patterson
2: hello this is jeff uh jeff patterson 11 on twitter i blog at gravity lens which can be found on at baddaystudio.com and I totally missed the Pluto flyby this morning. Um, so, it, I am a poorer person for it. So, Turn in your nerd credentials at the door, please. Yeah. That's
0: <laughs> alright. I missed it too. So yeah.
2: I'll watch it on YouTube.
0: <laughs> there you go. And also is the last of the Horseman Tripod,
3: Fred Kish. Hi, it's Fred Kish. I'm Fred Kish at Twitter. I blog at uh, Bernal Alpha, and I was actually thrown into Twitter jail today for tweeting about the Pluto flyby.
0: And wait, how does that happen?
3: You tweet too much. They think you're a, you're spamming or an automatic account or something.
0: He has a bot sent from the future to yes. smash yes. Twitter. Excellent.
3: So maybe it'll happen again tonight. Who knows? <laughs>
4: Twitter time. He did Twitter time. Mm. Yep. Does that stand on your record forever?
3: Uh, I don't know. It always. It, it, this is the second time it's happened to me, and the first time was also during a mission, either a launch or a uh, flight. Uh, I think it might have been the uh, actually Mars Curiosity when it landed on Mars. I got frozen out then too. <laughs> wow. You're on a list. So maybe I need, just need to get credentials. <laughs> That's
0: right special twitter pass
3: yep
0: it's probably coming unfortunately and uh, as i said our guest tonight is steen light she is an author she has publishes it three novels so far
4: three novels so far
0: novels and a handful so how many short stories do you know roughly
4: uh two
0: okay I, <laughs> I was going to i was going to say handful and i guess that was generous but you know
4: <laughs> <laughs> maybe three if you want to be generous
0: yeah okay we, we like to be generous here when we can. <laughs> and um, so Stina is, uh, is an author who has written three fantasy novels, two which you could roughly say maybe are urban fantasy, and one which you could definitely say is epic fantasy. And she was nominated for the Campbell Award in 2012 and 2013 and was shortlisted for the Crawford Award in 2012. So she writes really good stuff, and we will talk more about her stuff in a little bit and talk about how writing works for her and how her novels have gone. And I have a lot of questions, but first, I did want to talk for a couple minutes about ReaderCon this past weekend, because if there's a con we should talk about on this podcast, (laughs) it's probably ReaderCon. Yes. Well, no, 4th Street also, if any ever got to 4th Street would be, would be like a close second, but ReaderCon, for those who, who don't know is a literary only science fiction, fantasy, horror, weird slipstream, whatever else, neo-goth, bizarro, splatterpunk romance, whatever. Okay. Um, any, any sort of even vaguely fantastic literature, um, can have its day at ReaderCon, and it's a it's a great con it's for personally it's my favorite if there's one kind of go to every year um it's reader con and i've only missed one in 10 years uh, because i had major surgery the next day uh, that's I've, pretty much all that keeps me away from
2: I've Missed ReaderCon. four in a row and i had gone to 20 in a row before that so
0: <laughs> oh <laughs> that's killing it and uh and next I'm, year, you know, it's uh, it's in a different location.
2: Really? Thank God they mo- moved. Yeah, Alan Steele down at, at uh, RavenCon was telling me that they were uh, moving to another location. I guess the renovations didn't quite take or something.
0: Uh, I'll talk about the hotel in a minute.
2: Okay. <sighs> yeah, and
4: I've always uh, wanted to go. Always
0: wanted to go. Mm, it's great. It really is. and I mean, one of the things that I like particularly about it is that the fan to, you know, sort of pro-ratio is is great it's like there there are so many writers artists editors publishers who go and given the the actual size of it which is uh, i don't remember what it was how many it was this year but it's usually several hundred or so and so you get to bump in you literally bump into people in the halls you know you bump into john crowley you bump into kit reed you bump into liz hand Literally, just walking down the hall, you'll just bump into people all the time, or in the lounge, or in the restaurant. I mean, it's just, it's it's great for really being able to connect um, fans and writers, and then the people who prose with each other, obviously, and fan swaps with each other. And it's my favorite con, partly because of that, and partly because it is literary. It's just the focus is just it's a the focus has broadened a little bit to talk a bit more about fandom community, um, in the past few years, but in general, the focus is still on, on literature. There's no costume parties. There's no, you know, film room. There's no game room. It's just all, all literature all the time. And and it's basically three and a half days. There's a Thursday night programming that is usually free that anyone can attend. And then Friday and Saturday are the, are the big days for, um, for for the con and then Sunday goes about half a day and it always ends with sort of with a feedback session and then uh, and then everyone goes home totally exhausted uh, occasionally half drunk
1: and
2: uh, yeah <laughs> did they have really, the uh, did they have the Bad Pros competition this year
0: no no the Bad Pros competition has fallen by the wayside in the last few years oh. and it's currently been replaced by sort of a talent show. It's called ReaderCon Miscellany. Um, and this year, there was actually also in front of an 80s dance party, which I, I, felt, I felt sort of torn about. It's like I, it's great to have social functions, but I actually didn't come to go to an 80s dance party. I want to talk about the books. So, well, I, you know. I, I saw just... that
4: Max Gladstone went as, as uh, David Bowie.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I actually, it's just really funny. The, the interesting thing about these dance parties it seems like some people actually basically went in, in costume of a sort. I mean Rose Pox is talking about that too, um, getting all getting all dressed up to go and uh and my understanding from people, talking to people the next day is that it went quite well. Um but the great thing about ReaderCon also is that you know there's always there's always people, you know, in the in the lounge or at the bar discussing things. Or there's a party. There's a whole floor devoted to parties, and um, and everyone is pretty much there to talk about books. So you can quite easily, um, you know, find plenty to do. And uh, I actually ended up going to um, to Liz Hand's uh, book launch party for Wilding Hall.
1: Nice.
0: Uh, yeah, which was great. She was giving out little teaser books and. She personally handed everybody a glass of champagne when they came in. <laughs> so, nice. Yeah, and and they 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 really they gave the the room was too small. I mean, by the time I got there, it was full, and then by the time I left, the room was full, the hall was full, and people had sort of gone into the next room, which was empty at that point, and started sitting down and talking. So, so yeah, so it's it's a great social event, and and it's a great con if you want to go for for panels and for readings and, you know, they have coffee clutches, which are, which are particularly nice because like I said, because of that, that reader to fan ratio is so favorable that you could end up, you know, being one of like six people sitting at a table with, with Liz hand or, or Chip Delaney or, or Alan Steele or Max Gladstone to talk with other people. Um, yeah. So it's, it was great. Uh, I was on, uh, I was on one panel this year and I gave a talk panel was dog run at 40 which was a really that even if i hadn't been on the panel that probably would have been my favorite panel um for this for this convention because it went really well everybody on on the dais was incredibly invested um in, is there in anybody dog. special in the audience john <laughs> there indeed there was there was uh ron drummond who's edited chip <laughs> oh, yeah, anybody, also, yeah, anybody that, else the guy, yeah the guy who wrote the book was there too um so yeah so that, that was that was interesting to be there talking about dahlgren and you know and i i, I not actually he was I, I was actually in the seat where if i look just straight ahead there he was like you know ten rows ahead sort no of pressure this,
2: no pressure yeah no pressure
0: and, and you know the great thing was everyone was really invested in the book. Like I said, even the person who read it two days before the panel for the first time.
3: So everybody in the room actually finished the book, contrary to the legend? Everyone on the panel... Finished the book. <laughs> oh.
1: I don't know
0: about I don't know about those in the audience. I mean, the, of course, in the audience when we said, has anyone read Dog?" and most everyone raised their hand. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then someone said, "You know, who? How many of you have finished Dog?" and everyone sort of some <laughs> kind of furtively raised their hand. Um, but the great thing about the panel was because of that level of investment, and maybe because Chip was there, you know, there there was this sort of double, this doubly interesting dynamic going on of everyone on the panel talking about how much the book meant to them. And and like I said, everybody from, you know, uh, Jim Freund, who read it when it was first published, you know, to, to Terrence, Terrence Taylor, I think was the, 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 someone who was at it at the last minute. Um, he'd only read it two days before. Uh, and he's, he really described it as an ecstatic experience to read Dahlgren like that. Um, all of us, you know, had that like I said, there was this double dynamic of all of us being really invested and all of us having been profoundly affected by the book and then in a sense, you know, at the same time sort of thanking Chip through the panel, what we're doing on the panel itself as a way of sort of thanking him for for creating something that was so um that was just so profound and so and and you know, and the great thing about the discussion was it was it wasn't just that it we we called it a great novel. It was actually for a lot of the people on the panel, like a liberating experience to read. Um, and it, you know, for me, it profoundly affected my life. It really changed my direction um, as a reader and writer at 17. And everyone basically talked about having a similar experience at different periods. So hmm. that was great. That was probably the the highlight
2: for me. That was a, um, That was a Friday panel, right? Yes, well, yes. And what was the turnout for it?
0: Uh, let's see, we were in one of the, we were in one of the salons, which are the, which were the big rooms. Yeah. And it was about half full. Yeah.
2: That's, that's a lot of people for those. It uh, was. Big salons. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The salons are pretty big. And you know, with the extra degree of difficulty that it was about a certain book and you probably only went to the panel if you had, you know, read the book or or knew a lot
2: about the book. That's, that's a real good turnout. That makes me. So that was
0: great. Yep. And then, uh, I gave a talk, um, on reading protocols in science fiction uh, to a much smaller audience. Um, I think I had about 25 people in my audience.
3: So I almost filled up one of the small rooms. Mm. What What are uh, reading protocols for science fiction? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, okay, I, I probably... I can't, um, I can't expect a short answer from you. Tonight. You can't expect a short answer. But so
0: in, in brief...
1: Protocols?
0: So this is an idea that actually first appeared in samuel delaney's criticism and it's this idea that in order to comprehend a text you bring to your reading of that text an idea of already sort of an idea of what the text is about what its structure is like what its metaphors and rhetorical figures mean and things like that and he called that a reading protocol and the interesting thing about this is that he himself doesn't really use this idea anymore, but it was picked up by science fiction criticism and fandom, and mm-hmm. is used quite quite often, in a very unthinking kind of way. Like, using it as if everyone absolutely agrees on what it is. Like, oh, of course everyone knows what that is, of course. <laughs> when, in fact, the way that it gets used is, is, really, um, is really much more unstable than that. So I basically talked about Uh, Delaney's idea of what a reading protocol is, and I talked about two other people who've used it: James Gunn, who that sort of under underlies his theory of SF essentially, and then Joe Walton, who wrote a column about it for for Tor.com a few years back. Yeah, that was a good column. So I I talked about the different ways it gets used and what the assumptions are behind that, and then talked a bit about questions that might be useful to ask about it, um, and thinking about how we can use it and how we can sort of in a sense, kind of move move through and and past it, and uh, yeah, it went it went it went quite well, so that was nice. I'm going to actually uh, do a write up, probably for a signal signal, um, on the panel. So
2: I will I will there'll be something out there in the world shortly. Did you buy anything? Oh
0: my god! <laughs> so every year I go to ReaderCon with a budget. That's and, so,
2: that's so cute. Yeah.
0: But but usually, usually I stick pretty close to them. I'll, I'll, I always go over. But usually only by like, you know, $10 or $20 or $30 maybe. And this year I went $100 over. Mm.
1: Wow.
4: You have a budget. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, and I totally put, well. And, and of course, um because I'm a bookseller, I was talking about the other booksellers. And he had a book that I wanted. So he let me take it and send him a check later. Huh. Oh, so that's nice. Yeah, like a hundred and sixty over budget if you if you compute that one in, and then I and I don't count the book I bought at the very end of the convention, my last book. I just don't count that because I don't. Yeah. Want
2: to. Um, yeah, through the through the nineties, that was uh, most. I would probably say I waited until ReaderCon. I I made my list, and then I normally bought most of what was on my list at ReaderCon mm-hmm. from Larry Smith or one of the other guys who was. Uh, who was peddling that used to be my my uh I, I avoided going to bookstores for the first half of the year solely so i could blow way sure. too much money at reader come
0: sure and now that's really changed i mean actually i had this conversation with a number of the booksellers there because of course they had to talk shop and we talked a lot about the market how the market's changing and the the people who sell you know sign limited you know antiquarian highly collectible stuff um are really uh really starting to to uh to have a hard hard really hard go of it. Um though amazingly Larry Smith who sells new books at cover price with no discounts whatsoever. Yeah. Does fine at Readercon. Yeah, I think primarily
2: I think primarily because his his he's five times bigger than the science fiction section of any bookstore. I mean, right. It's, but it's like walking it's, through. The, it's like walking through a dream, you know. <laughs> the number of books that I did not know existed that I ended up buying because I saw them for the first time on his shelves is is without number at this point. Right. You know?
0: Well, and that's the thing. Like people and, and, and he, you know, he he, does, he seems to do good business. People are always looking around and buying stuff. Um, I usually go to ReaderCon with my cousin, who's also who's a, who's an actual he's sort of like an actual collector. I kind of play at being a book leader. He's an actual collector. I mean, he has, you know, ten, you know, mahogany bookcases with glass doors full of, you know, collectibles. And, I mean, he just, he does it right. I just, like, you know, stack. You know, them, <laughs> bookshelves. But I bought some stuff this time that I should probably, you know, think about. You like seal war. Yeah, the Seymour Chamblot hardcover yep. first edition. That yep. was nice, wow. very nice. That, and that that and, and the 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 jacket was beautiful. I couldn't believe the jacket on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't a reprint either. I, I checked the the paper and stuff, and it wasn't a reprint cover. So that was nice. The kind of the big thing I got was I got Damon Knight's In Search of Wonder, the first edition, Ooh. signed by him to Ed Meski.
1: Oh, nice.
0: with, with the award wrap on it from when it won the World Science Fiction Award.
4: Nice.
0: And that, yeah, that was like the big, that was like the cool thing, the really the coolest sort of thing that I think I got. Um, and I got three or four other signed books, and I got a few. I mean, I, I bought several books for, for for Delaney to sign, of course, because I'm sort of working on that. And then I got signed stuff by Lucia Shepard. I got... Um, uh, Paladin of Souls by Louis Bachel designed first edition. Um, so yeah, there was there was for me I was looking for that sort of more more collectible stuff. It was actually there was actually a lot there this year, mm. and there was a lot of bargaining. There was a lot of bargaining um, going on, and I talked about that with some of the booksellers too, where they're like, you know, this is in this era with the availability of books online and stuff like that. You have to be willing to bargain. And you have to really think hard about, you know, how much money you need to make <clears throat> a certain like for the con, like how much you have to pay, how much you have to make to get back and actually make a profit for the con. Um, and you know, some of, for some of them for the booksellers, it's it's getting harder and harder because they're actually having a harder time finding material. And um, the two best provisioned, uh, sort of used out of print collectible sellers. Are the ones who like they're just out there all the time looking for estate sales, looking for, you know, just looking all the time, and that has to, your your full time job has to be looking uh, to find the right stuff to and at the right price that you can sell and get a reasonable amount for. So, hmm. um, yeah, it was great. I mean, there was it was great. It was, and the the bookshop is I always spend a lot of time in the bookshop. Yeah, because um, it's also a great place to bump into people too. I mean, uh, you know, I, I bumped into the Samuel. Delaney, uh, a couple of times in the bookshop and, uh, and and David Hartwell, you know, runs, runs actually a couple of tables. So you can always walk up to him and sit and talk to him for a while. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, that's ReaderCon is, ReaderCon is a very intense experience and, uh, and it's really just valuable for me because I always come away with a long list of ideas of, of stuff to write about and and things to ponder. So
2: Yeah, and and ReaderCon's always had a entire you know, aside of, aside from tracks that are about tropes in SF or, or issues in SF and stuff like that, um, it's always had a very heavy tract about the act of reading itself. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I've always found interesting. And I remember when, oh God, it was it was Charles Strauss, I forget what it was, but they were, they were discussing one of his stories, the one that was the homage to Time Patrol, I forget which story it was. Um, and they did this entire panel about the whole idea of nesting your conceptual breakthroughs, how doing a conceptual breakthrough in a story, you know, we're on a ship, or it's all a dream, or whatever, isn't enough anymore. And how you actually have to uh, either nest them or tweak them in such a way that it has a degree of impact. You know, that that uh, doesn't doesn't jade the reader. And uh, I remember that was one of the most fascinating panels that I that I had listened to because I had never really thought about it before because I got to the point where there's uh, you know those 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 eye opener moments that you have in a lot of stories. Um, after you've read hundreds and hundreds and thousands of books, you know it. They they tend to they tend to really have to be something special to have impact. And uh, I hadn't really I hadn't really considered that you know the idea of a narrative tool and how they're sort of reprogramming the reader as to what's going to happen in the rest of the story. And uh, it was very fascinating. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, that and you know this year again there was there was some great panels like that. there was a good one on on reading stances and genre, which was in some ways kind of in the same ballpark as what I did my talk on this idea of you know where a reader positions themselves and how their conceptions of genre may influence the way they read a book are, are very important to consider as a as a writer um, as well as say as well as a critic or reviewer or even as a reader, and uh, there were some other good ones about. Um, I went to a good one on sort of how technology and magic often bounce off of each other. Like technological advances that we have appear in magical worlds. Analogs are created for them. Yeah. And magical worlds and vice versa sort of things that seem magical bleed over into science fictional conceptions. So that that was a great panel. It was like Ted Chang and Ken Liu and, and, just and a couple of other people really talking really smartly i mean the, the great thing about this is that the conversations that take place on stage uh, are really often very intense and they're very absorbing and the people know what they're talking about there's just a pretty high level of, of you know awareness of of the subject and everything just goes really really well mm-hmm. so yeah. i mean that's you know it's it's great to walk out of a panel and go, I, you know, learned something. Have
2: new knowledge, yeah.
0: Right, more than. I had what seen.
2: I had nice seen. Models Del- are going to be. Yeah, Delaney gave a talk at one of the last ones I was at, or he was on a panel I forget. And one of the things he brought up was the physical relation. You talked about stances. He was talking about the physical relationship that we set up with a book, and how as we get near the end of the book our relationship with it changes our expectations change we know we're approaching the end we sort of gear ourselves up for the you know for the denoma and what's going to happen now and he talked that this was right as you know ebooks were starting to gain traction and he said he had actually read an ebook or somebody he knew had read an ebook where he had set the reader to not tell him how far into the book he was so that as he read, he had no idea how far from the end of the book he was at any given time.
4: Was that disorienting?
2: Uh, at first it was. He said at first it was. And so when I got my, my last tablet, I put Moonreader on it for EPUBs. And I actually had that as a default setting. And I've gotten so used to it now that I have difficulty reading physical books. Because I go, I, you get to, you get to a real, you know kick-ass scene and you're going you start wondering oh my god is this the end you know and and you don't know if it's going to keep going or not Uh, (laughs) and it really i actually i read uh the book that really did it for me was i read uh i read city of stairs that way um so you know after after the actual climactic scene i'm sitting there going what about the aunt what about the aunt and and finally you know it it plays out, but uh, yeah, it, it does. It changes your mental. It, once again, it's hacking the reader. It's changing the mental expectation that they have. Yeah,
0: exactly. And that's, yeah, that, that's just, yeah, exactly. It's just the kind of stuff that like every year that I go to reader something like that. Yeah. Um, is there. And that uh, I find is great for me as a writer and, and, and as a reader too, because I feel like I'm constantly evolving as a reader as well as a writer. And what ReaderCon I think promotes is, is that is that evolution. You know, ReaderCon's basic mission is to say, you know, reading and writing and, and all the things we do are not static activities. We don't do it the same way, and we shouldn't do it that we shouldn't do it the same way. And let's think about all the different ways that we can do it, and and you know how might, how those might change the act of understanding a book or creating a book or wow. things like that. So yeah, it's just. Always, always very, very educational.
1: I've
4: always, always wanted to go.
0: <laughs> totally, if you can ever do it,
2: it's totally worth it. Yes, it is. There's also really a great, if, if if one has access to a car about two miles from there, there's actually a pretty large used bookstore um, in the center of, uh, right in the center of Burlington that I normally yeah. try to hit. They they tend to have a lot of overstock, but there's a lot of used stuff in there as well. So.
4: Nice, so,
0: groovy. So that that was Readercon. So now let us turn to our special guest. Yay!
1: Yay! <laughs> as Muppet I
3: said, slay the, sorry. <laughs> Muppet, Muppet slay. Ol. Ol. Exactly. Muppet <laughs> Yay! So dull day, Steena, huh? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah
3: <laughs> we, we should point out if I can't remember whether John mentioned it today is a very special day for you
1: yes it is
3: coincidentally we were able to snag you on book launch day
4: book launch day so
3: you've probably been up since midnight
4: <laughs> no I actually this is my my third book so I'm I'm not quite as freaked out as I as I used to be but still... <laughs> What is it? I'm fine, freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional.
0: <laughs> there you go. And actually, if you needed to launch a book, this would be a great book to launch Ooh. At, at an object. I mean, you could probably knock someone out with this. Yeah. <laughs>
4: yeah. You probably could. It's 650 pages. Wow. I did
2: not know that. Really? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Ooh, I'm psyched. It
1: it's, is. It's. It's a phone book, baby. <laughs>
2: how,
0: how big? How long were um, of uh, of blood and honey and, and blue skies for pain?
4: Those were four hundred, like 350, 400 pages.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I, I got that impression that this is probably as long as the first two combined. Yeah.
4: Um, and it it's interesting. Like longest thing I've ever written. The longest thing I've
0: ever written. And so what kind of challenge was that after having written two shorter, sort of shorter books?
4: It was, it was really interesting trying to keep track of of who was doing what, when, but, but I have Scrivener for that. And, and Scrivener is marvelous that way. Mm -hmm. So that helped a great deal. Um, Yeah, it was, it was a little hard to, to do that. It was a little hard to like make sure that everyone got, Stage time that needed it, and
1: um, yeah,
4: mm-hmm. it, it, keeping track of all the details is pretty rough.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's it was interesting because it's it it feels more complicated than 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 the than the, the, the fallen and the Fay books do, and it, I got that. <laughs> oh yes, it is. I mean, it, it's funny when, especially I think in, in "Blue Skies for Pain," things go just go. It's just you know, there's no there's no stopping to catch your breath. Really, the the books just go, and this one really felt spacious in a way that I was like, wow, it's 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 almost. I feel like I'm almost reading in some ways a different author because there's just this shift in in pacing. I mean, that you probably need for a book this length, but.
4: Well, I mean, epic fantasy is, it's a different style. I mean, I was using, for Of Blood and Honey and Blue Skies from Pain, I was using more of a, a crime novel pacing, right,
1: mm-hmm.
4: that has yeah. its own kind of feel, it's got its own kind of language, it's got its own kind of everything. Um, epic fantasy is a completely different style. So, Yeah. <laughs> I guess in a way, um, I don't know. I just I feel like it's really important to have versatility as an author, and not write exactly the same way. Um, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to shift into something completely different. Um, I didn't want to be pigeonholed. Uh, I always felt kind of sorry for actors that that get stuck in these roles and they're always the same role. And you just—I feel, in a way—a writer, writers can get stuck. I just didn't want to get stuck, you know.
1: Sure. No, so I, I just, think. So. Yeah.
4: I, I just think you just should should learn and expand and, and grow and learn new things and, and try new things. And sometimes they don't always work, and that's okay. Um, but experimentation and learn theres just so much to learn about writing. And it, it, I just, I get so excited just thinking about it. There's just so much to learn. You can't, you just can't know it all. You just can't. And and the more you study, the deeper you get. And and I just, I love it so much.
2: Can Can you give us uh, 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 the the uh, the jacket copy for it? What about what it's about? Elevator pitch. Yeah.
1: Oh God! <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> I, I,
3: like for one thing, you said you're calling it epic fantasy, but you kept asking questions about sailing ships for some reason and <laughs> Napoleonic <laughs> yeah, uh, stuff, and uh...
1: yeah, I just I
4: um, so my starter question ask often authors start with starter questions. My starter question began with uh, what would. What would fantasy look like if Tolkien were American? Now, I came across that because I was reading this really wonderful... I, I, have, a, I have a thing for military science fiction. I like it very much, um, even though my politics are diametrically opposed to... I, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of war. Um, but I, I like military science fiction anyway. And uh, so I was reading this military science fiction series, and at the end of it, there was this this essay that was all about how fantasy was not good for Americans because it glorified feudalism. And I was like, "Oh, guys, wow!" <laughs> um, Tolkien was writing for for the British. He was not writing for Americans, so. So there's that. And um but it made me think, you know, what would what would fantasy look like if Tolkien had been American? So so I set it in um Revolutionary War kind of ish world. And um I pulled things and I, I wanted to be I wanted to be free to do what I wanted to do. In in of Blood and Honey and and Blue Skies from Pain. I had to be so meticulous with the history and just so exacting with everything. There was right. so much pressure. And I, as much as I thoroughly and absolutely enjoyed it, I just wanted a vacation from that. So I gave myself a 40-year period to play around in. So from like 1770 until 1810. And I've always been a huge fan of pirate movies and tall ships and so I've, i wanted to write about that and and so i did and so suvi goes to sea and uh nils handles the land war stuff and i don't know i just had, i wanted to have a good time and i did actually it was a blast
1: <laughs>
0: it, it it definitely reads that way i'm so glad you know, that 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 that, that feeling of that, you know, while there are weighty things going on. Um what was interesting to me reading it was that it felt in some ways sort of lighter, a little lighter than the the Fallen and the Fae books. Yeah. It just it just I mean it's interesting to me that both the like Nels and Liam are both sort of conflicted heroes unsure of their power. I thought that was an interesting kind of parallel that I saw. Uh. Uh-huh. Um, but here there's so much more going on. And while I said it's profound, it's war and and a lot of and a lot of really portentous things happen. There's there's a, I really actually I really liked the way that without giving any spoilers this book ended because I thought you don't see that kind of ending very often. Oh, cool. There's usually super. There's usually a super clear resolution at the end of most epic fantasy novels. The hero finds the MacGuffin. The the dark lord, you know, gets a dagger through the eye or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But here, but here, because things are in process, and that was another thing I felt too. There's, there's there's a much there's a real feeling of things in process that creates a little bit of uncertainty sometimes, but also feels a little lighter also feels a little easier to, to read along with and one of the side effects of that I thought was that well, it, it was sometimes hard to for a lot of the characters to really it was really hard to get some of the characters mm-hmm. um, Nels and Suvi um, in particular actually worked really well because we just see so much of them doing things it's it's you know they're like sort of prosaic just everyday almost things at the same time they're they're trying to stay alive and and trying to you know trying to trying to figure out a way to win this to win this war and that just created a tone that made it feel easier to get into and made it often more enjoyable i thought than even a lot of other fantasies that kind of, I feel have sort of a stick up their butt. (laughs) Okay. Like they're, they're really portentous, like I am hero man, the heroic, and I have come (laughs) to save the land of light from the really dark, bad people. You know, we see that quite often in fantasy. And I don't want to
2: be the chosen one.
4: (laughs) Yeah. I didn't, I absolutely didn't want to write that kind of fantasy. I just don't, I don't like it. I don't like reading it. It, it kind of it bores me I it's been sure. done a million times um, there was a time period in my life I started off with with Terry Brooks reading Terry Brooks and and then I read Tolkien and then I worked my way through like every possible fantasy that I could find get my hands on and I just got to a point where I just everything started sounding exactly the same Everything was this formulaic, hi, I'm the farmer boy who's secretly the prince, the chosen one, the, you know, whatever with the secret power. And now I'm going to go off on my journey to go hang out with the thief and the ranger and the the wizard. (laughs) And then we're going to go find the MacGuffin and save the world because only I can do it. And I didn't want to do it that way because history is more of a it's, it's more complicated than that. And I wanted to express that in a, in a fast fantasy setting. That's why there's only, that's why there are multiple point of view characters. Um, that's really why I wanted to do that. Um, because I feel like that's more, it's more realistic than the chosen one. I mean, history doesn't, you
0: know what I mean? I <laughs> know. No, exactly. I mean, and, and the third POV character, is it Ilta?
4: Ilta.
0: Yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure if you had a pronunciation for that. If it was different, but um, in, 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 in a really interesting way, each of them is sort of supposed to be a chosen one, mm-hmm. but things just don't go as planned. Nope. And and how, and how things result, like, is it without giving away spoilers? I think how things resolve in the novel sort of at, at the end of, of this book really really sort of you know say to the reader it's not a question of of chosen ones, it's a question of the ones who will step up and and do what needs to be done. so it doesn't matter if it's if it's a the farm boy with the magic sword, if he's not gonna step up and make the make the choices he needs to make. And also understand the people around him too. I mean, what's great about like Nels, for example, is that the way thing uh, the way the way he is, it almost seems to be like this part of his part of whatever his magical talent is. He's one of the he's part of the the species that that seems to have magical powers. The way that it manifests really puts both a price on violence, yeah. but also creates a lot of empathy for him as a character because of how he has to deal with with pretty much every every violent action he takes. Yep. And that was that was really nice. I mean, it's it and again, it's just there's a lot in here and it's not it's not just subversion of tropes, which so often feels recycled. It's actually saying if we look at this from a different angle, what can we do with it? And yeah. I thought that was really really a nice a nice thing about the novel is how you you do that time and time again and not in a f- super flamboyant flashy way. Um or in a way that's obtusely philosophical either, so it feels it feels pretty grounded and um and you know you, you feel the cost the characters go through, and again, like i said that's that's something that, that epic fantasy often sort of bends the knee to, but you don't really feel it you often don't engage with it and there's there's a lot of engagement here that that works pretty well, I think
4: yeah i I just wanted to talk a bit about um a um, relationship with violence i think I, I wanted to say a few things about that in that book i wanted to i wanted to have that discussion with the reader that there's more to it than just you know you bop somebody on the head and then you win you know so many so many times in fantasy that's that's all that seems to it's, it's all that seems to happen but there's There's more to it than that. And ultimately, is that really the answer that is that really the solution to the problem? Um, And I think not always. Sometimes it creates more of a a problem than it, than it answers. And I think all the time it does, frankly, (laughs) but, but that's not, not a position that you hear much about in epic fantasy circles. So, yeah, I guess it, it's kind of worked for me as a as a peacenik to <laughs> to go there. Um,
1: yeah.
0: Sure, but but the cost to the characters too is really is an important part of the story as well. It's yeah. so Not just the question of the infliction of violence. Yep. But what violence does to the violent. Yep. So when you commit an act of violence. Their effects on the person who, who does it as well. And if there isn't, it should really set off warning bells in your head.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And that, that happens here too in this book. With, with In some instances, you get, it's, you know, in a lot of fantasies, you just, you're almost becoming newer to the violence. Like, and then they killed the 12 orcs, and then they, you know, found the magic chalice. Okay. And then they, oh, they had to kill 12 more on the way out, and then they had to burn down a village. And, oh, yeah. Well, you know, there we go. What's next? And that's totally not what happens in this book. Um <laughs> because, like I said, there's not just the there's that there's that critique of violence, and then there's also demonstrating that you know violence can have a, a range of effects on the people who commit it as well
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that 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 the, i think those two things work really well together um in the novel
1: Thank
0: you. yeah which which makes it again it's it's it gives it a nice distinctive tone. But I think you managed to not be too heavy about it either. it feels yeah. it feels integrated Thank you um yeah I which think, is nice to see.
4: I think Victor lightened up the tone
0: <laughs> yeah, the, the, the assassin lightened up the tone, yes,
4: yes <laughs> Victor's the smart ass,
0: <laughs> yep, so I was thinking about this in comparison. Because I, I just can't help but make the keep making the comparison back and forth between the 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 fallen and the fae books and and this. So, as a writer, were there what, what was what was like the biggest challenge in shifting gears? I mean, you have talked a bit about the process, but what was the biggest challenge to you in shifting gears?
4: Well, the funniest thing about I think. It, it's just I wanted I wanted to I wanted the freedom to just do whatever and I and I and I told my agent when I when I started this I was just I just want to do something where I don't have to nitpick so much about the history everything doesn't I just want to do stuff and he was like yeah so I want to just make up shit and I just want to it'll be easier and he and he started laughing. <laughs> And then I got into it, and the big challenge was, in fact, that I did have to make up everything. It, all the stuff had to be make, made up. So that was a huge, huge gear shift. Um, I was constantly trying to look for things to look up. to, Because, again, with with the Fae and the Fallen stuff, there were street corners I had to look up. I was... I was I was that specific. Everything had to be just so, and this was just. I kept looking for that anchor, and it wasn't there because I had to make it up. Um, so that was a big challenge. The I guess this the the writing style was a bit different. Um, I would had to make sure that I wasn't thinking in in Irish. You know, as <laughs> yep. ever. so I had to make sure of that um, there were things that I actually pulled from my previous research that I that I did pull from that um, this whole business about I, I go into it in this in the next book about the death of the language being the death of the nation um, kind of thing. Um, there are things I do. I do pull from the from the Irish research but yeah the voice of the book is very different and it did I had to read a lot of epic fantasy to to get myself back into that
3: mm-hmm. like what titles
4: um well I I read a lot of I'm a huge Terry Pratchett fan uh-huh. huge Terry Pratchett fan. So I reread all of the Terry Pratchett multiple, multiple, multiple times. Um, so I, I, I probably leaned more heavily on that end of the spectrum, but, but I also read Ken Liu and I read, um, uh, what else did I read? I've read a lot of, of non, his nonfiction so, um, look over here. like Pox Americana. That was really cool. It was about smallpox.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay.
4: Yeah. It's a really interesting book.
3: This Any is... historical fiction? Patrick um, O'Brien or...
4: Oh, tons of Patrick O'Brien! I love Patrick O'Brien. I'm a huge Patrick O'Brien fan. Who, as it turns out, was a Jane Austen fan.
3: Yes. Yep.
4: Yeah, and you can really tell. I mean, the the female characters in his in his books are are really good. I I I really enjoy his work, and and the fact that the women do show up on the ships and all this stuff. I read a lot of the Sharps books too, but I okay. I had to I had to stop. Um, at a certain point I couldn't couldn't take it any the I'm a I love that kind of fiction, but I don't like being constantly kicked in the head for being female and showing up. <laughs> you know? I get I get really tired of that, really mm-hmm. but you know, I, I it took eight books. <laughs> <laughs> um let's see Reread um uh, Kidnapped. I, I love Kidnapped. It's it's my one of my favorite books. It has been since I was a kid. It's I just love it so much. Um I'm looking over at my bookshelves. Ooh, there's this wonderful book that was a big help called Heart of Oak.
3: Oh yes. Yep. Yeah.
4: Um, Patrick O'Brien's baby was a lot of fun.
3: Mm -hmm. I think Um, we have the same bookshelves there, (laughs) Steena.
4: It sounds like we do. Um, I also read a bit about magic, like uh, like illusionists, you know. Did you
3: develop your own magic system for the book?
4: Um, That's the interesting thing. The magic that I used for the book, I wanted it to be all right, so, so I attended, attended a long time ago this at uh, an agency retreat, this wonderful seminar that Holly Black, I don't know if you're familiar with her. Oh, yes. Yeah, she gave, I love her her work so much. She's so amazing. Um, the Coldest Girl in Cold Town It's just, ah, I love that book. Um, but she talked about magic systems. And one of the things that she said that really hit home for me was that basically magic is power, like money is power. And it affects your society in, and warps it in the same way as money. And so I started thinking about how people's relationship with money is and how everyone has a different relationship in a lot of different ways. So a lot of my characters have different relationships with their magic. Uh, some people are more ritualistic and some people are not Um And it's a little – money is is really slippery, so so the magic is not as – the magic system is not as definitive, I think, as most people who read fantasy expect as a result of that metaphor. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it made it a little tougher. And I'm still not – for me personally, the jury is still out on that particular experiment, but, um, but I like playing with the idea. Cool.
3: Hmm. Now, and you're with uh, Saga.
4: Yes, Saga Press.
3: How was that, being in a... Uh, uh, kind of in a small shop, but in a large shop at the same time?
4: I loved it, actually. Um, I'm... I'm very lucky in that Joe Monty, who is now my editor was formerly my agent. So, (laughs) (laughs) so it was one of those things that I, that was really,
3: I think this was the same story with Ken Liu too.
4: Yeah, it is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Joe called me up when, when, he, when he got the, the whole he was like okay so I've got some news and I'm like okay what did I do and he's like no 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 it's not, nothing you did wrong or anything I just, I just have some news I'm like okay I'm not going to be an agent anymore and the back of my head was like ah! somebody just like <laughs> yanked the rug out from underneath me and I'm falling and I'm falling and I'm falling and, and I'm like okay that's nice so they're offering you your own imprint that's wonderful. Congratulations. Ah, <laughs> my, my career is so over, you know, <laughs> that's wonderful, Joe. That's fabulous. And then he was like, Oh, well, you know, and you still have Barry wants to know if he can be your agent. And, um, I'm so buying your book. So I mean, it was just like, Oh, Oh, oh okay. Okay. <laughs> But it was, in it probably lasted all of like three minutes or something. But it felt like twenty minutes of sheer terror. Um, but but Joe really, really, really gets my work. He really understands what I'm doing, and working with him is just so marvelous. He just he understands my work in ways that even I don't understand sometimes. Um, it's just. I'm so lucky to have Joe in my life as a writer he's just incredible and yeah it was a really great experience
2: mm. Jeff um, no you pretty, <laughs> you know you pretty much asked everything I wanted to'm I'm, I'm, I'm dying to read it because I, I'm it, it, the way she's describing it I really want to see how the, how the how American historical baggage uh, uh manifests um in in the course of this uh,
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah it's definitely on my short list so, well, uh, yes I'm very psyched
1: yay
0: <laughs> um, yeah it's it's I, I think it's definitely worth reading it's um about halfway through I get this weird vibe of like what if the American Revolution had the Americans had decided to take the fight back to Britain that's sort of you know don't just throw them out here let's go throw them out there as well there's kind of that vibe to it which is very interesting I mean the historical dynamic that's going on in there is is actually really um, a lot of fun to watch unfold and uh, again just I really like the way that things sort of come together and, and produce something that's it's not radical necessarily. But like I said, it, it doesn't you know subvert the tropes. It just sort of tries to look at things from a different angle and really tries to treat the characters as people who are caught in this, these extraordinary situations. And th- that's the kind of stuff that's always really absorbing to read. Um, because you get invested in the characters and you get a feeling that you don't know how things are going to turn out and that's for me as a reader that's something that keeps me going as a reader so and those elements are, to- are there and it really yeah totally I think it's totally worth reading. Um, I trying to think if I had any other questions, but uh, those are the big ones that I had really. Well, um, so what happens now after after cold iron? I know today's the release day. It's like, so what happens next after
2: the release day? <laughs> what have you done for us lately? <laughs> yeah, what's
4: up next? Um, actually, I just turned in the second book in the series. It's called Blackthorn, and it Blackthorn is um it takes place more in Acraea, um, and it's it's uh. So there's there's the acrasia the acrasian part of it, and then there's Suvia Nels are still trying to to pull everything together, and uh, so there's that that going on. Um, so there are new char- some new characters, and um, yeah, I tried I tried to do a little more of the. A mystery, I guess, thriller with the with it mm-hmm. with black So it's it's epic fantasy plus mystery, thriller, serial killer <laughs> thrown in because okay. I like mixing really <laughs> odd things.
3: <laughs> and that, you say it's a series, so have you got a an endpoint in mind, or is it open ended, or? A trilogy and that's it, or
1: no? It's
4: it's more open ended. I want to but, I want to write. I, I really like the way Terry Pratchett handled series. Mm-hmm. Every book was a standalone unit, and yet it was connected with the other books. And that's really what I want to do.
3: Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I'm on board. Yep. Yeah.
4: Yay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you for being on board.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, Excellent. Well, shall we now turn perhaps to culture consumed? Yes,
3: we shall. And I say we start with Fred. Uh, me again? You. Uh, I've been slacking.
4: Oh, you haven't been talking
3: much. No, I, 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 I've been slacking since the last episode as far as what I've been reading. Only up to 70 books for the year-to-date, and only up to 536 short pens for the year-to-date. Side.
2: <laughs> Letting the side down, man. <laughs>
3: um, oddly enough, speaking of Terry Pratchett, I started rereading the series. I, I've kind of read uh, – there's a couple of uh, charts out there that show you, like, you, you read city books or you read the guards' books or you read right. the Industrial Revolution or whatever. Uh-huh. Well, this time I decided that I always tend to avoid reading the Unseen University slash Rincewind books because I just remember not liking them that much um, way yeah, back I'm when. A,
4: yeah, I'm not a big Rincewind fan myself.
3: Well, oddly enough, I started. I've decided this time I'm going to re- reread the series from start to finish, and I'm going to do an order of publication, and I found myself really liking those first three books again. I mean, everything's there. I mean, death is there, talking capital letters. The yep. patrician is there. The city watch is there. Uh-huh. You know, all the elements that we love later on are there, at least in some sort of proto-form. And Rincewind is not as annoying as I remember him. So, huh. and and, and uh, the first two books with the luggage and Two Flower, the, the Discworld's first professional tourist. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, maybe it was because I was being a tourist myself when I was rereading them, but they were really funny, I thought. Um, Speaking of military science fiction, I'm continuing my read of Howard Taylor's Schlock Mercenary with book 11, Massively Parallel, and book 12, Force Multiplication. I'm also trying to do a lot of nonfiction, so I read Warren Ellis' collection of talks, Cunning Plans uh how to travel with a salmon and other essays by umberto echo wow uh mission to mars by buzz aldrin and a astronaut's guide to life on earth by commander hadfield the guy who did david bowie in space and that that one was actually an audiobook read by hadfield himself which made it doubly doubly good for me and uh i guess i will finish off with a pair of classics um with Folded Hands and The Humanoids by Jack Williamson. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Folded Hands is the short work, and I forgot how creepy his robots were. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's such a depressing story. It's like, there's just no escaping these things. They're everywhere, and they're just going to ruin your life to make, by making you happy. The Humanoids was a, I think, a three-part serial, so it's a novel, And he kind of changes the background a little bit between the two stories, even though they're linked. And throws in all this ESP, which I think was the John W. Campbell uh, influence of, you know, hey, ESP is real. Work it into your story, buddy. Uh, So I didn't like it as much. It's still a good story, but the first one is definitely, you can read it by yourself, and it's got a lot of impact, and it's really creepy and scary, and it gave me nightmares. And I probably finished off with a four Hellboy collections so far. Um, the Science Fiction Book Club got me doing some of the follow-on series, the uh, BPRD, the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense. And wow. to be quite yeah. honest, I had never read H- Hellboy before this, so, you know, that was new. This is new, and I'm really enjoying it. Good. I uh, like the artwork. The stories are, sh- you know, pretty straightforward, but I, I just love the simple artwork. He's not they're not going crazy like some of the guys I've read.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I will report, oh, yes, um, I will send a link to have it included. Um, as people know, my I am a fan of Night Vale, the podcast. About a year ago, I got my daughter hooked on it, driving back from a camping trip, and she has gone through the entire series of, I think, 60, 70-odd episodes at this point, twice now. And she just finished a week-long uh, solo performance theater camp. And her solo performance was a episode of Night Vale, basically, community radio, being done she was playing an intern, uh, reporting from the dog park. So Night Vale fan fiction done by, by my daughter. And apparently she got her entire class to tr- tromp through Princeton one day, all chanting, all hail the glow cloud. So,
2: wow. <laughs>
3: wow. Nope. The apple oh. does not fall far from the tree. No, not
2: at all. Nope.
3: So, <laughs> that's pretty much me. Excellent, Jeff.
2: I got a few things. Number one, uh, after my discussion of Secret Wars last week, I've been following that. A couple of the tie-ins that came in that were really outstanding, uh, 1872, which is their sort of Western revisioning, uh, was really good. It was a nice little teaser. I want to see where it's going. Uh, The one that really surprised me with how good it was was uh, Civil War, which has to deal with uh, uh, a country being divided between... um, Tony Stark and uh, Captain America and the, the sort of weird, uneasy truce that they have and that truce starting to fall apart. That was re- was a very intriguing reimagining of, um, of uh, contemporary Marvel history that I really liked. Um, and Squadron Sinister the second issue of that came out and that's been re- that's been really good. I'm I'm hoping that they kind of continue that after Secret Wars is over. But another crossover kind of went under my microscope and that is Gail Simone's uh, Swords of Sorrows. And um I huge Gail Simone Sam, Simone fan always have been and there's a lot of really fun stuff in this book. Um There's also a lot of tie-ins as well that have been playing off the main theme. Uh, The issue of of Swords of Sorrows that just came out was basically Red Sonia and uh, Dejah Thoris at each other's throats for about six pages, which was incredibly fun. And there's also a lot of stuff with Jane Porter and Lady Zorro in it as well that I was pretty happy with. The problem I'm having with it is as much fun as these meetups are and as much fun as the little adventures are, I don't think it's hanging together as an event comic, which is what it's modeling itself after. Um, one of the tie ins that came out, uh, that is coming out, the second issue just came out a couple of weeks ago, is uh, Deja Thoris and Irene Adler, where they basically end up swapping places and end up on each other's worlds. And. Mm-hmm. It's been really good, and I. It was by Leia Moore, and I'm really hoping that it rubs off on the main title a little bit because it's. That's, I think, the kind of dynamic that it needs. Uh, we're starting to see this big fantasy conspiracy that's bringing all these characters together, um, and why the forces at play are only focusing on the females. The. the It's been and it's been really good in so much that it's been a very enjoyable read. At no point do you just roll your eyes. But at the same time, it's such a big conceit that she's pursuing in this that I think it could tie together a little bit tighter. Um, uh, Sort you know, Stina talked about violence, nothing but violence in this book. Just swords out (laughs) at the drop of a hat. And uh, and normally with good reason. Yeah. in, in a similar vein, the other book with an all-female cast right now, George Perez's Sirens, I caught up on that. And once again, it's, it almost feels like he's doing the original Crisis on Infinite Earth the way he wanted to, um, with a little bit of the Eternal Champion tied into it. And I read all four issues, and the art is George Perez. It's spectacular art. He does great superhero costumes. He does great spaceships and technology no argument there. Once again, I think he's throwing a bit too much into the story, and I think it could have been a little more streamlined or started off with a smaller focus and built up. Um, Got to talk about first issue of Lando taking over. Oh, yes. Take, taking over where uh, Princess Leia dropped off. Uh, first issue of Lando. Charles Sewell, he may become my favorite Star Wars writer if he if he keeps up his track record. Um Really good. It's about Lando and uh, Lobot, the the his sidekick there, Lobot, who didn't really talk in *Empire Strikes Back*. He has all the best lines in this book. Yes. And, um, and a lot of great aliens. A lot of creepy-looking aliens too. Um, very interesting idea of the Empire sort of absconding with various. Items that belong to assorted crime lords and sort of the tension that that builds up very neat idea Um, And I want to see where he goes with it On the other end of the spectrum, uh, the first issue of the Star Trek Green Lantern crossover came out Uh, This soon after The end of convergence And the inclusion of all the different colored power rings that DC kind of shoehorned into into the story for no good reason and the fact that the star characters are from the J.J. Abrams reboot Has convinced me that there is nothing less compelling than a crossover between reboots uh, And it's something that could have been a really, really neat idea Just sort of plummeting into an abyss uh, I, I will read the rest of it um, General Chang from Undiscovered Country is in it Which makes me very happy because I, I like seeing original series characters show up But we will see where this goes uh, Providence by Alan Moore, second issue of that came out, really starting to build up the dread, really playing well with a lot of Love uh, Lovecraft tropes. Had a couple pages where I got real nervous because his Lovecraft series so far have been rather traumatic, so I'm, I'm a little concerned where this one's going to go. Um, mostly dialogue, but there are a couple pages that I just kind of went, ooh, when they, when they occurred. Uh, book-wise... Um, Something that John talked about a few months ago uh, uh, Fisherman of the Inland Sea by Le Guin I read that, I started reading that I'm about three stories into it so far And yes, I really do like it uh, After rereading most of the anthologies Edited by Pamela Sargent I elected to actually go back and read a Pamela Sargent book So I started reading Alien Child recently Oh, I forgot how good that is um, Which means I'll probably end up on a Pamela Sargent kick For another, another week or two Um, I finished watching the adaptation of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Uh, and for the most part, I'm really, really happy with it. Uh, there were quite a few changes that were made and there were quite a few things that were omitted, but for the most part, the characters, their motivations, for the most part, their appearances and, uh, uh, I thought really nailed it. I thought as adaptations go, it's, it's, it's pretty damn good. And I thought it was, it it really gets uh, a for effort and I'd say B plus for execution. Um, the actor who plays the gentleman though, gets so good by the end of it that I really wish he had been cast as Lucifer in this upcoming Fox abomination that we're going to be subjected to. Um, because I'm oh a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of Mike Carey's Lucifer. I've said it before, it's probably my favorite comic ever. And turning it into a cop drama is just just urinate on me. It would be less painful, you know. Um, and one last thing, and this is primarily for John. I have finally found a science fiction writing group here in Loudoun County, Virginia. And Yay. 10 Yay. two meetings on this past Sunday, the first part of my work in progress. Was subjected to their ministrations, and for the most part, uh, uh, aside from a few a few points of confusion, for the most part the feedback was positive. However, the uh, gentleman sitting next to me, at one point when I said, and then the POV the POV character talks to his commander, and he looked at me and said, "His," I thought she was a female, and I said, "You did? Why?" And he said, "Well, primarily the delicacy of the narrative." So now John, I have another person huh. who discusses work this way, so I gotta deal with that on a on a regular basis. But it was very good feedback because I got home and I mentioned it to my wife and she had actually done the, the proofreading copy edit on it. And right. she said, Yeah, I thought she was female too. So I have to rethink my POV character now. So There you go. So that's about it for me.
0: All right. Cena, have you read anything lately that's uh
4: Oh gosh, let's you see. Talk Yeah, um, I finished Grace of Kings, and I really liked it. That was amazing. I'm in the middle of Time Salvager right now, and I'm really enjoying it. I'm reading Julie Truneda's Gulf, and she's just incredible. I really like – she's just Mm – she has this wonderful knack for being very, very exact in her science, but not – Intimidating with it, if that makes any sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: It's, it's, it's. She just makes it so interesting and so entertaining, and I don't know. I just really like her work. Um, I've also read a number of Mary Robinette Cole's books, and I really like those. Um, that was part of my part of my research too. Um, I recently read the whole run of Hellblazer and. I really, really loved it. And all, of the, it? Next all, on
2: all it. the way, all the way through?
4: All the way through, all of really.
2: it. They, they lost me after India, man. After that India storyline, I just couldn't take it anymore. Ah. Uh, uh,
4: now, the thing I really liked about it was that uh, he's unapologetically, um, for me, like the symbol of, of, of Great Britain, just. Marching around and planting a flag and everything—it's yeah. just that's that's what he is, unapologetically. Um, and and of course he's an ass. Of course. Um, also, I uh, American Vampire. I started reading that. I'm not a I'm not I'm very very particular about my vampires. I'm not a big vampire freak, to be honest, um, because I think they're like the least interesting horror monster frankly. But, uh, but I'm really liking American Vampire a lot. Um, I'm also watch rewatching again, The Middleman. If you've never seen it, I highly, highly recommend it. It's this very short run uh, series that was on M- ABC Family. Um, it is just hysterical. If you've never heard of it, it, I think you can find it on YouTube. It's just... I really adore it. (laughs) Um, I've also been watching Ascension, which I like.
2: Which one is Ascension? Ascension is...
4: It's... It's... uh, uh, Around Kennedy, they supposedly send this group of people off in the spaceship kind of thing
2: yeah yeah
4: yeah and and the whole time everybody on the ship is like it's very you know early 60s and everybody is in their early 60s thing but with just ever so slightly off because it is 50 years since then Mm -hmm. um and and the whole time i'm like but 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 that that doesn't work but 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 this other thing doesn't work and but this other thing oh come on that doesn't work and then right about that time I was like oh come on that doesn't work um the whole thing takes a left turn in Albuquerque and I'm like
1: oh my god
4: whoa so I'm I'm hanging with it and and seeing what's going on and it's taken several other turns and I don't know I'm kind of enjoying it I don't know are any of y'all watching that
2: I think I watched the pilot for that.
4: Uh, it is not Man- Mad Men in space. I I, have to, I can't even watch the the previews of Mad Men. It makes me stabby. I
2: have to I have to double check. I did I did watch the first episode of Killjoys and I did like that. Um, I have not caught up though.
4: That is on my list.
2: I I preferred it to. Um, uh, I preferred it to Dark Matter, which started a couple weeks before. Um, I uh-huh. thought I thought Dark Matter did a pretty good job of catching the catching the uh, the comics uh, feel, but I was kind of distracted by it while watching it. So I'll probably catch up with both. So
1: fair enough. All
2: right.
0: Wow, that's that's pretty good. As for me. Um, where to start? I've been well, I've been it unlike last time, I actually read things that I knew I would enjoy, so that was a good starting point for, for you know just do, doing some reading more recently. After the the Hugo's I really tried to find stuff that I thought would be interesting and, and fun to read. So I of course read a book about food in ancient Rome. That's for some reason where I went. Uh, Patrick Patrick Faw's uh, "Around the Table of the Romans: Food and Feasting in Ancient Rome."
1: Nice. It's a very
0: dr- it's a very dry title, and it looks like it's going to be an academic snoozer. But what's great about it is that I feel it really culturally situates Roman attitudes about food and feasting, and he connects it to all kinds of religion, to politics, to the dynamics of how the Republic tra- I mean, just he just really situates. Food, in a way that illuminates all kinds of other corners of how the Roman Empire actually functioned, and that's and then there's a lot of recipes too. So it's interesting to read about how you make some of this stuff. And
1: uh, what's it was, called
0: again? It's called Around the Table of the Romans by Patrick Fawz, F A A S. And the great thing about it was. I would flip open to random pages to start, because it it's not the kind of book you feel like you read cover to cover. But I would just... Every page I turned to, something fascinating was there. Like, here's something about their attitudes about medicine and how that related to food. Here's how they prepared eels. Here's how they you know did this and that. It actually... Um, I was reading it partly as research for a story I'm working on, and it was so interesting that actually have kind of changed the story now um, in ways not making it like ancient Rome necessarily, but what it said about how people look at food, how they consume food and why they consume food, not just for saving hunger, really, really um, made me think about, you know, when you're writing, you know, the everyday lives of your characters, how, how this stuff can work. So I, I thought it was very valuable to read. And it was fun, too. I mean, Like I said, I, I feel like I learned a lot just reading this. And it's, uh, it's really interesting, too. And I, I, I'm tempted to actually try some of the recipes and see see how That's they turn out. Not the eel. Yeah. Not, not so much the eel.
4: Yeah, eel just seems appealing.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, well, now in the story that I'm working on, it actually opens with two characters having a meal and they're having eel and ale. At the the local uh, fishmongers, so it's
1: so chewy.
0: <laughs> so it is. It is well, and that's the thing, right? It's like it's not just that they're like a lot of times when you see food appear in stories, it's just like there. It's like and then they ate their beef and were satisfied or whatever. <laughs> right, eels eels very particular, like
1: yeah, it's way rubbery. that you eat
0: it, and right, exactly. Yeah, and uh, and it's it's sort of the mark of an inexpensive dinner basically is what is why I included it. Cause it's, you know, it's a mark of an inexpensive dinner. It's not a delicacy. Um, you don't, you know, you can eat eel for the taste, but that's probably not the only reason you're eating eel. So that was really interesting. And then I reread Dahlgren. <laughs> Bless, you. Bless you. Sorry. Bless you. Because I felt I had to for the, the panel at ReaderCon. Of course. So I reread Dahlgren. And that was Fascinating. Because I think it's been 10 years, at least since I've read it. And as I said, like the thing about ReaderCon that's often interesting is that you question your your ideas of being a reader. And you can often sort of evolve yourself as a reader. And looking and reading Dahlgren again after a number of years, it really struck me how much i had forgotten about the book because just, there's so much in there. It's often hard to like remember every single thing, but also how it, the experience of it is somehow dizzying and weirdly comforting at the same time.
1: <laughs>
0: um, because I've read it now, I think five or six this is my fifth or sixth reading. I think of Dahlgren wow. and each time it really, it really, I really feel kind of dazzled and, and disheveled but because of the flow of the book the flow of the prose there's a there's a there's a there's a pleasure there that you get out of reading it and trying to put pieces together and figure out what characters are all about and things like that so so it was it was a very enjoyable reread and um it was really useful to have that in my head when i went to to ReaderCon. And it reminded me of how significant that book was to me when I was much younger. And how that that's the book that actually turned me sort of more literary essentially. I've been reading mostly Space Opera and Conan and then my my sort of science fiction mentor gave me Dahlgren to read. And it you know, twisted things and I and then I immediately went out and read Ulysses and Gravity's Rainbow and and it really it really you know, sort of created a, a different angle on things for
2: the me. secret origins of John Stevens. Exactly. <laughs>
0: and I also read Nettie Okorafor's Lagoon.
4: Oh, I still uh, want to read that.
0: It's, it's really good. I, I had a, I had a few technical problems with it, but it's really good. And the, the really interesting thing about it was, but halfway through, I was thinking, it's really interesting, but do I like it or do I? And I realized that I, I needed to sort of take a step back from it and let it do its work, and not try to keep imposing what I thought should happen on the text. Yeah, because it's a very and it's intentionally like a very chaotic book. Uh-huh. It's really it's in and you know the prose style is really. Designed to reflect that it's like choices that I thought at first weren't were very good choices for how something was described or how a situation unfolded. You know, later on the book I'd be like, wow, that just really reinforces the feeling of you know people being afraid or excited or worried or or uncertain, and uh, it ended up being a really useful thing to read and a very enjoyable in sort of a heartbreaking way and i was really surprised by it which i liked as well i, I love it when a book surprises me even though i felt the story was one on a, at a certain basic level we've seen before like we've seen alien invasion stories before <laughs> but this one really tries to not not turn it on its head necessarily but ask some different questions about how it would work and why aliens would come here in the first place and what they might actually do,
1: yeah,
0: so there's a lot of inventiveness in it, and there's a lot of really like there, there are definitely some some heartbreaking moments in it, and <laughs> i I came out of it thinking, you know, I don't think it's the most original story I've ever read about aliens, but it is definitely the most uniquely in all of its elements taken it the most uniquely like thoughtful take. Um, trying to keep in mind things about not just the characters, but the the shift in setting. So it's not Washington D.C. that gets invaded; it's Lagos, Nigeria, and how why that happens really changes the ideas of the book and changes how you think about aliens too. So I, I liked that a lot. Nice. Yeah, and then I just finished China Mayville's new collection, Three Moments of an Explosion, um, which is his a, a latest short story collection. And I liked a lot of the stories, but I didn't feel myself blown away this time um, by what, by what he gave us. There's some, like I said, there, there are nervous stories that are really, really good. There's a great story about finding alien artifacts in, archae, in archae, an archeological dig. Yeah. That is really in some ways almost just a perfect story. Yeah. And then there's others, like there's one about floating icebergs above London and then uh, that i just felt didn't cohere it's like you're the the sort of the the gimmick is interesting but the story feels light in comparison to the to the interesting aspects of, of you know, the science fiction and the fantasy elements so i thought it was kind of a mixed bag but i think the thing about maybe is that he's he's almost always worth reading uh because you almost always like for me I almost always have a conversation about myself when I finish reading something by him. With a short story or a novel or a blog post or whatever. I almost always have to stop for a couple minutes and sort of chew on it. And uh that's something I look for in writers and, and Mabel almost always delivers on that, so I
1: don't
0: think it's his his best, you know, collected work. But there's there's definitely some good stuff in it and I think it's worth reading. And then uh, I am in the middle of Um, I'm shortly going to finish Warren Ellis's project um, Supreme uh, Blue Rose. Mm -hmm. And that is just trippy as heck. Yeah. It is so trippy. Uh, And I I actually don't really know what to make of it. But I think (laughs) it's something that like a comic book that people comic graphic novel that people should read because the the artwork is simultaneously really crisp and really like, I mean just really trippy like you've got really well rendered characters and really detailed scenes and there's this color palette behind it that doesn't that, that you don't understand why that's the color palette yeah. like that's not how the colors should be but that's how the colors are and that actually creates an aura of strangeness that taken with the the story, which I'm still trying to figure out how it all goes together, um, really produces a, um, a really science-fictionally estranging experience of reading it. So I'm, yeah, give, I'm quite given, interested in... Sorry?
2: Yeah, no, just given what... Uh, once again, given Alan Moore's work with the character and sort of what he grounded on it uh, I I kind of caught a whiff of what Ellis was doing in that series near the beginning uh-huh. he still managed to surprise me So
0: yeah no exactly and it's, it, it is it ends up being being you know I'm, I'm still I'm, I'm, I guess I'm about just over halfway through but there's so much that seems really inventive about it yeah even as, like I said, the artwork is on is on one level very straightforward. Um, the way that it, it's blended with the writing um, is really is, is really quite a striking experience to yeah, read. Yeah, it's, so.
2: it's uh, the the style is conveying more tone than the actual art is the actual mm-hmm. representative art. So, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: And it's great when I see that in a comic because it just it feels like it just has has just elevated the comic. Um, and really engaged me on another additional level mm-hmm. um, as I read, so yeah, that's always great stuff to see. And that's pretty much me, except I'm, I'm uh, actually uh, doing a rewatch of Stargate Universe right now, too. Uh. Um, which I, the first time I, I saw it was really blown away by the second time I actually had a lot of questions, and this is I guess the it's my third rewatch. Really? Um, second rewatch, sorry. No, sorry. I watched it, watched it again. Now I'm doing it again one more time. Because I had a conversation at ReaderCon with someone about it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they were talking about the way the stories were constructed <laughs> and how some of the science-fiction conceits were used that make me want to go back and see see them and see, is, is that you know is that what's going on? Because we kind of agreed on some of the points and disagreed on some other points about it. Because um, I thought it kind of sagged in the middle. Of the two seasons. I mean, the the middle part, I thought, was really kind
3: of flabby. Um, And given how... Sorry. Are you watching it one by one or several episodes at a time? I'm usually watching, like, two or three episodes at a time. Because I found... Sorry, go ahead. When I I watched it, when it was live or whatever, you know, on, Mm -hmm. I was kind of like, eh. But then I watched... I guess I got the DVDs and I would watch three or four episodes at a time and it seemed to me that it was more a series of short arcs, like maybe three episodes long. Mm -hmm. And I felt it worked better that way than broken up, even. Mm -hmm. Well, Air certainly works like... So I watched Air, all
0: the first first three episodes together. Mm -hmm. And then I watched Darkness and Light together. And then I watched... um, I've just finished watching Time and Life together. And I think you're right, there's something about watching them in blocks that you see the connections more. And you find some of the subtle things you may not have got the first time or even the second time. Uh,
3: like Robert Carlyle, who I thought was being... They're coming for somebody.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Robert Carlyle, who the first time I saw, I thought, yeah, he's doing okay. But he seems like he's erupting a little. And then the second time, watching it individually, I was like, he's just really chewing the scenery. Yeah. Now, in the third time, I'm like, "Wow, there's actually really some interesting things going on," um, that I hadn't caught the first two times, and it makes it more interesting. So, I'm finding it really interesting to rewatch again. Some series I just can't rewatch at all, um, but I think the universe probably rewards a rewatch or two.
2: So, I'm going to keep going with it. I think Stina had something else she wanted to mention.
4: Uh, Charlie Strauss I've been reading a lot of Charlie Strauss I really, really like his laundry series.
2: Oh,
3: yes. A lot. Yep. A lot. Fun stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, well, it sounds like we are perhaps at the end of our episode. Any God, final We talk thoughts?
2: a lot, don't we? <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're
0: chatty. We're chatty. <laughs> um, any final thoughts?
2: Um,. Wow! I totally forgot about Final Fubs. I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) Okay. I I stand on my commentary. (laughs) Very well. (laughs) Well, Steena,
3: you first, or?
4: Well, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. This is this is really fun. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's been wonderful talking to you
1: guys.
0: Thank you for. Yeah, no, it was great having you. It was it was a really nice conversation.
4: Yeah,
2: I'm. I'm very happy about this and I'm very psyched to read this book. So
1: thank you.
0: So cold iron is her new book. And uh, today, the day that we record the podcast, July 14th is the
3: launch day. So Yay. is now available. And my final thought is also on this day. Today we visited Pluto and it was very, very moving. I mean, even though I got thrown into the Twitter jail, I'll say that it was very moving because Clyde Tombaugh was always my hero growing up, an amateur astronomer who became a, a professional who discovered a planet, and you know it, it's a play it's the further farthest planet I'm going to use that word planet in our solar system for most of my life, and it's just amazing to see you know that we can still occasionally excite people with space. <laughs> So, yeah,
4: I was looking at like the, some of the images. they were like, "Oh, this is the best image that we we've had, you know, all this time." And it's all pixelated and shit. And now we have this. And and it's like, "Oh,
3: that's so cool!" <laughs> tomorrow it'll be even better when they start downloading. Oh, yep. so cool. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, it is. So, all right. Well,
0: thank you again to. Justina Light, for being our guest tonight. And uh, I think we're all set here. And um, Everybody uh, have a great morning, afternoon, evening, or, or night where you are. And we'll see you
1: next month. That's right. We'll be back. Goodbye. bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye.